in the Victorian times, I think it was, it, it was divided into um, men who got migraine were the clever ones, the cerebral ones, you know, the very intellectual types, and women who got migraine were the flaky ones who fainted and were pathetic. And I think that stigma has persisted, and I think that's part of why we really struggle to get it taken notice of. When you think that it's considered to be, you know, right up there in the in the top disabling conditions in the world. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast, the show about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. My name is Dr. Rupi. I'm a medical doctor. I also study nutrition and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me on this podcast where we explore multiple determinants of what allows you to live your best life. And remember, you can sign up to thedoctorskitchen.com for the newsletter where we give weekly recipes plus tips and hacks on how to improve your lifestyle today. Dr. Jessica Briscoe and Dr. Katie Munro are my guests from the National Migraine Centre today, the only national charity that provides a clinic for migraine sufferers and cluster headache patients, although they do see a spectrum of different headache disorders. And they've been delivering expert and evidence-based support for over 40 years. And in addition, they're committed to advocating their cause and educating healthcare professionals in the conditions that they treat. They also have a podcast that we'll refer to during this episode called Heads Up, and I highly recommend you check that out for different topics on the subject matter of headaches. Migraine is something that I wanted to talk about for a long time because it is the third most common chronic disease in the world and something that really does not get that much attention. And an estimated one in seven people suffer from it as well, with more being female than male. In the UK alone, 25 million days are lost each year from work or school because of migraines. And in today's episode, we're going to define exactly what we mean by migraines against other headache disorders, as well as lifestyle and food measures that you can put into action today or share with your loved ones that might be suffering from migraine to help you in an effort to reduce the number of episodes and perhaps even get rid of them altogether. Regular eating, migraine, diet myths, low carb diets, ketogenic diets, all these are on the subject matter today. We're going to be discussing a lot more than just things you should be eating versus things you shouldn't be eating uh, and all the other lifestyle measures as well. I, I know that you're going to enjoy this podcast. Um, it's, a, it's a deep dive. It's a little bit longer than usual, but I think this is certainly going to be useful for lots of people. As always, check out the podcast show notes. We're going to put all the links down there as well as checking out the Heads Up podcast as well as the National Migraine Centre as well. It's a fantastic organisation and one that I hope to support going forward too. On to the podcast. Well, why, don't, why don't you tell me a bit more about the charity? Because I was really, really pleased to, to come, have come across it on a Google search. And then I read up about you guys and then I saw your podcast and stuff. So it was, it was great. So why don't you tell me a bit about the, the organization? Okay, well, it's actually our 40th anniversary this year. We were planning to have a gala for it, but obviously yeah. due wow. to social distancing, that's not possible. Um, but yeah, it was set up um, by some neurologists. I think initially it was just to fill a gap where there wasn't really much headache. Um, there wasn't there weren't many NHS headache services and the whole point was that it was meant to sort of manage people who so those who could afford it 
can pay and actually those who can't afford to pay for, for good um, good expertise can have it for free. And there was a lot of research initially um, and it's changed names and changed forms. We've had lots of different doctors coming and going over the years. Um, and now it's a, so none of us work every day at the National Migraine Centre. We work, most of us work one or two or, or more, Katie sometimes works more days <laughs> than that. But um, we do one or two days there. And it's, it's it, the emphasis on seeing all headache types, not just migraine, um, trying to help people to sort of manage in, in more, I'd say more of a holistic approach of using medications, lifestyle management, um, and sometimes some interven- other types of interventions and giving education to people too yeah the education is really a big part of it and that's not just I mean one of the beauties of working there is you have a much longer time with the patient so you can do a huge amount more education about what is migraine what are we trying to achieve with the acute treatments what are Mm. we trying to achieve with prevention all of that but it's also we roll out the education so we do GP GP training schemes we do I've spoken to pharmacists we've done nurse training um, you know, we we really want to kind of raise the profile of migraine and get better care and make more people who don't get migraine understand the really massive impact. Because, I mean, we see it week after week as people just so desperate and weighed down with the impact on them and their families and their work and everything. So I think as a charity, we really that's a really important part of it it's not just treating it's all the education around it as well and that's partly why we started our podcast because we felt there was a little gap in the in the podcast market there for for a good education so we try and kind of put a different topic each each episode and then spread the word and we found lots of patients have said oh my goodness I learned such a lot so we are actually wondering whether some of the simpler cases are not coming we're seeing more and more complicated people now (laughs) because they've sorted themselves out by listening to the podcast but lots of GPs (laughs) said they liked it too yeah definitely I mean I was going to say I mean it's it's an incredible um, tool in in the in in the sort of progress towards self-care I guess if people are listening to the podcast actioning it and then you know uh, having benefits and not presenting uh, uh, eventually well I was gonna I wasn't gonna ask this actually but it just popped into my head now and I don't want to digress too much but what do you think about um it, the charitable status and how you're you know creating the service on a pay by what you can sort of um uh, you know in a method um and and how that compares to NHS because it seems to me that you're providing such a good service that it should be NHS funded and people should have access to similar organisations up and down the country. Yeah, I mean, we very strongly believe that. And it is a, it's a very difficult thing to juggle um, how much... I mean, we're, as a charity, you're always fighting to survive, essentially. Um, and we don't... Mm. We have to. You have to juggle between being pushy and being sort of actually giving people the care they need. And there's also the difficulty that a lot of NHS people... GPs, consultants, they don't know who we are. So they sort of think, who, what is this strange private clinic that you've gone to? And we'll say, well, we're actually a charity. And they'll say, but, you know, you, we don't understand. And then they'll read the letter and understand. But it, that, I sometimes feel like we're fighting that battle to sort of show that we are altruistic. We're giving good evidence-based advice as well. Um, we try, we've tried... Yeah, we've tried quite hard to um, kind of liaise with the NHS services. And I think, you know, we we know loads of the NHS headache specialist doctors and they're so overwhelmed with referrals, you know, that it makes sense for them to talk Mm. to us and commission our services. But 
we don't find that they're very interested. Commissioners don't kind of come knocking at our door saying, wow, could you do this for us? And it's uh, it's a bit puzzling, but I think it's the nature of uh, the the sort of stigma attached to migraine, which is one of the things we're fighting, is that people underestimate it all the time. They think, oh, migraine, yeah, everybody gets headaches, Mm. don't they? And, of course, it's really much more than that. You know, so many people having the brain fog, having auras, having profound nausea and vomiting sometimes, neurological symptoms, um, it can go on, an attack can go on for five days, you know, and and that, if you're having that Mm. two or three times a month, your whole life is changed, but it doesn't get the airtime and the it doesn't get the recognition it's of the invisible. disabling condition, I, does I think, it? Yeah, the invisibility of it really doesn't help. I mean, most people with a migraine look okay. Um, you might, if you know them well, mm. you might be able to say, "Oh, you you don't look quite right, or you're slightly pale." But if people get them a lot, they're so good at hiding it. You know, they just keep yeah. going. Mm. And people say, well, you're fine now. Whereas actually, if you've got another, actually as disabling condition, so stroke, paraplegia, something like that, it's it's much more visible. Yeah. I mean, it, I, I was just looking at some of the stats on the website and in anticipation of the podcast. And it's one of the most, well, it's the third most chronic, uh, most common chronic disease in the world. Mm. And affecting one in seven people and there's 25 million uh work days lost yeah. in the uk alone yeah. due to migraine yeah. so this is a significant problem that's having a massive economic yeah. impact you'd think that there would be more money directed towards services that are actually providing great clinical outcomes yeah. well it does cost the uk economy 3.4 billion pounds a year which is a lot of money wow um wow that's that's incredible. Yeah. Well, why, why don't we go um, and, and talk a bit about your backgrounds, uh, personally, and how you got involved in the service, and then we can dive into the, the whole subject matter and try and help some people if we can. But um, Jessica, do, do you want to start with a bit about your background and how you got involved? Yeah, um, so I'm a GP by background. Um, I've had migraine, as you'll hear most headache specialists do. <laughs> um, since I think I worked out since I was about seven, actually. Um, and I, seven. yeah, wow. yeah. Um, and I hadn't I'd always just thought it was a normal part of life because my mum got it you know other family members got it you know it's just you just cope with it and carry on and it wasn't until I was at university and I was I was had a placement in a GP with a specialist interest headache clinic um in Exeter uh, David Kernick who's one of our he's now the head of our specialist interest British Association of the Study of Headache Group. So I, I tell him, I tell the story all the time, and I embarrass him a lot. Um, he was, um, he was, he was sort of teaching us and two. So we were fourth year, I think, medical students, and he was teaching two GP trainees as well. And he said, right, there are four women in here. One of you must get migraine. So I put my hand up, and he said, yeah, one in four women do. How do you manage it? And basically, I didn't do anything. And he said, right, and he he completely revolutionised my migraine management. I suddenly could treat it and not and be able to do things for the rest of the day. And I sort of thought, oh, I really want to do that. I'd never really worked out how. And then when I was in my first year of uh, GP, I just qualified fully. Um, I saw an advert in my email inbox that said, "Do you are you interested in headaches? Do you have a history of neurology? And I've done a bit of neurology during my training. Um, would you like to have 40 minutes um, consultation time with a new patient? I thought, yeah, that sounds really nice. Um, so <laughs> I applied um, and here I am today. Amazing. That's great. And and yourself, Katie? Well, I interviewed Jessica, so I made a good decision that day. (laughs) (laughs) 
um, so I was a GP. I was a GP partner for 25 years uh, in Potter's Bar. And during the time that I was working, having never had headaches, I started getting these really horrible middle of the week headaches. And I took no notice. It took me ages for the penny to drop that I was getting migraine. And so I went mm. to it was um, in Charterhouse Square. Then the centre ran a couple of study days. So I thought, oh, I'll go and see these study days. And it was so inspiring. I came away going, oh, I'd really like to work there. And my colleague, who was also a partner, said, don't be silly. You're, still, you're far too busy. And I was. So when I decided to change my work <laughs> life balance a little bit uh, back in 2013, I thought, right, this is on my list of things to do is is explore working at the National Migraine Centre. And then an email came round and uh, and the rest is history. So I've been working there since, in fact, it was 2014 I started. Um, and it's been, it's great. It's just such an inspirational place and get such good job satisfaction from it. So, yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah, good. And you work with like across like uh, an incredible team as well from different backgrounds, yeah. including neurologists and some researchers as well. Is that right? Not so many researchers at the moment. We, we're happy to do research, but at the moment um, we aren't particularly actively involved, but we, we liaise with people. So there's a group in Cambridge that are trying to, raise a profile of migraine for children and they're doing an app for children to understand their migraine better. So we, we work with them and, you know, we do focus groups and things like that. But yes, we have consultant Amazing. neurologists and, and GPs working there. Yeah, and we've helped with chronic migraine studies. So there was a Warwick study looking at the impact of chronic migraine. Yeah. Um, uh, I think it wrapped up about six about a year ago, maybe. Um, so we we do get involved with that, but we haven't done our own original research for a while. But our I think our CEO is quite keen to do some research at some point. We've also um, we're also really keen to raise the profile of other headache types, which are less well understood. So which is what we do these Thursday tips. I don't know if you've noticed them on social media, but they're basically one of us standing there for an, a minute or so, just giving a tip. And my latest one was to say that we should rename the centre the National Any Kind of Headache Centre because we're, <laughs> we're very happy <laughs> to see patients with cluster headache. Uh, we, we, Jessica and I have quite an interest in Ella's Danlos and that is associated with CSF leaks and, and various other uh, types of headache resulting from that. Is it rare? Was it rarely diagnosed? Is, is the, the mm. current discussion mm. about these kind of um, yeah. connective <laughs> tissue hereditary disorders so yeah any kind of headache people can come and see us or if they have migraine that hasn't got headache like vestibular migraine or you know some of them a lot of children have abdominal migraine and it's not picked up until they go then mm. often their parents go oh hang on a minute i get migraine and my son or daughter is getting tummy aches could it be linked often we point them in direction of the yeah. podcast episode right? so yeah there's just too much to <laughs> yeah. talk about Rupi that's so. great <laughs> I know I know and, and, and there's probably listeners already listening to this like I just need to book into the migraine center and I, I, I hasten to add all the links are going to be on the podcast website so do check it out the national migraine center but let, let's um let's talk about the different types of headaches actually as you just alluded to there there's loads of different types I think they're used interchangeably often incorrectly by not only patients but also doctors mm -hmm. as well I, i'm sure i must have said something like a migraine cluster or oh, something no, like that, don't say that. I, was, <laughs> I know yeah well, not on the podcast don't worry but um 
perhaps through <laughs> my training or you know when I was learning about headaches and I didn't because unfortunately lots of things as a GP as, as you both know you know we have to yeah. learn so many different things and I think you know it's quite easy to fall into traps and bad behaviors Absolutely. and habits so I hope that this podcast is going to be good for for GP trainees and, and doctors across different specialties too but why don't we define exactly what we mean by the different spectrum of headaches and then we can dive into migraine mm-hmm. specifically um so headaches are usually uh, split into primary headaches and secondary headaches um secondary headaches are where you um that basically something else is causing a headache so that's the ones that everyone worries about so um every time there's always a theory that that the patient is worried when they've had a headache that they've got a brain tumor i personally think the doctor is worried that the patient is worried they have a brain tumor but that's another story um but it's things like brain tumors other um sort of um meningitis other types of conditions that will cause a headache and then the primary headache disorders are the ones that we tend to deal with. But it's always important to try and rule out the secondary headaches. Um, but there's such a small proportion of headache disorders that um, actually you can usually rule that out quite quickly once you get used to seeing, so seeing people with headaches and knowing what to look out for. So the most common primary headache disorder is migraine. Um, and that is split into umpteen subtypes to be honest I mean I'm actually I'm forever discovering a new one that I've never <laughs> defined before um but actually to be honest the important thing is to, to establish do they have migraine do they not have migraine and actually the subtype doesn't matter so much it's nice to put a label on it but we can talk about that in more detail and then you've got the next big group of ha- headaches are the tri- uh, trigeminal autonomic cephalgias or TACs um and cluster headache is the is the big name from that group and they are all essentially a problem arising from the trigeminal nerve, which is a nerve in, which goes into the into the face. Um, one of the branches can cause pain, usually around the eye or forehead on one side. And um, that the cluster headache is called the suicide headache. So it's meant to be the most painful mm. condition known to humans. Um, although I hear that about a few conditions, but I do genuinely think it's true about cluster headache. Um, and that one tends to be more. That one's very. That one has a very typical pattern. So. It tends to be periodical, so people will get it once or twice a year or every two years or every 18 months, more so in spring or autumn. And then it will last for a few weeks, usually usually at night, um, and you'll have a few patterns of it. And then there'll be other symptoms that people get with it, like eye watering, um, eye redness, nasal obstruction, nasal running, sweating. Although those are not diagnostic of cluster headache, you can actually get those symptoms in all of the headache disorders. Um, and I think those are the... Those are the sort of two main groups that we think of when you were talking about um, migraine clusters. And um, the only reason we get upset is because it really confu- when people say I've got cluster migraine, you sort of think, ah, do you have cluster headache or do you have migraine or both? Because you can yeah, have both. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the other, um, yeah, the other one I just like to flag up, which I think is hugely overdiagnosed, is tension headache. So tension yes. headache. Very mm. often people say, oh, I, or the other phrase that presses our button is just the normal headaches so a a headache is not normal you need to have a diagnosis (laughs) so there is no such thing Mm -hmm. as just a normal headache but tension headache lots of people have been told oh it's probably stress or it's probably tension and we most of those are actually migraine that hasn't been properly diagnosed because tension headache by definition is a featureless headache so if people have got any amount of um nausea or vomiting or sensitivity to light or sound or movement or smells, then it's actually migraine. 
that is defining migraine, not tension headache. So tension headache is also quite more tricky to treat. So migraine, we've got a whole range of things that we can do now. I would say to patients at the end of a consultation, this is plan A, but there's always a plan B. So, and they come in and say, oh, I've tried everything. I'm just yeah. saying, no, you don't. You haven't. Yeah. <laughs> I have many things. To, <laughs> many things to suggest here. So, um, but yeah. And I think- also, tension headache. I think tension headache is such a misnomer as well because everyone thinks it's caused by tension. So everyone said, oh, my neck's tense. It must be a tension headache. Actually, it's just a really mm. bad name. It's not caused by muscle tension. I don't think we know what causes it, but it's not muscle. We know it's not muscle tension. That's a, a different type of headache, um, the cervicogenic headache, which is also overdiagnosed, <laughs> probably, um, because um, it has to be diagnosed on scan. So it, it's a neck. that's a headache that's caused by um, structural problems in the neck. Um, if you scan most people, I think even over the age of 20, they will have some structural changes in their neck if you MRI people. Um, and do you say that their headaches wow. due to to their, that, that neck damage? Do you say it's migraine? Is it, it's, it can be very tricky. And that's not to say that manipulation therapies wouldn't necessarily help migraine, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's cervicogenic headache. So it's, it's all a bit... I mean, I think most of it's migraine, I... if I'm honest, but um, I'm biased. Yeah. Well, I think... <laughs> I mean, yeah. we know that ni- there were some studies and they showed that 95% of headaches that pitch up in a GP surgery are migraine. If a GP says it's migraine, mm. they'll be right. And oh, if my. they say it's not migraine, mm-hmm. they'll be wrong about 97% of the time. So yeah. it is much more common. And I think there's a lot of myths about migraine and, and misunderstandings. And so going back to the neck thing, we know that migraine pain is referred down into the neck and shoulders and sometimes it's predominantly in the neck and shoulders. So people think they've got to have something done to their neck. And we get the same with sinuses. Lots of people say, oh, I've got terrible sinus. And I get this knitting needle like pain in my sinus when I'm getting a migraine. So you can see why there's confusion and people go down the wrong pathway. Um, but I think, you know, migraine is mm. incredibly common. But there's also a myth about, oh, it has to be one side and you have to have zigzag lights and you have to be vomiting. And of course, it's a massive spectrum of um, effects. So some people have really quite mild or infrequent migraine uh, right the way through to people who have relentless chronic migraine day by day. The other one we haven't really mentioned, which is linked to migraine, is medication overuse headache. Oh, yes. I never think of it as its own headache. That's why I always think of it as a... And you don't... Yeah, medication overuse headache is this very strange phenomenon. Um, Most common in migraine, you can very occasionally get it in other primary headache types, but it's it's rare. Um, It's whereby... It's this headache that's... It's usually quite a dull, featureless headache, um, generalised headache on a daily basis. Um, And it's caused by using too many medications. So any medication can cause medication overuse headache in people who are having migraines. So the very thing that people are doing to try and get rid of their symptoms is then causing pain. And the amount of painkillers you Mm. take is different from different classes of painkillers. I tend to say on average, you want to not, you want to try and have painkiller it's days of painkillers as well not doses of painkillers so you want to have less than roughly 10 painkiller days a month um but it is dependent on different which types of painkillers you have but if you do if you have more than 10 painkiller painkiller days per month for three consecutive months or more you're at high risk of developing medication abuse headache 
And in the studies show that in migraine is something that is between 40 and 70% of migraine patients have medication overuse headache, which is quite a wide, <laughs> a wide range, which yeah. shows you how difficult mm, that's it is. Yeah, it's wide. quite difficult yeah, to... And you can't diagnose it without trying to stop people from taking their medication. So people have to be on a detox for 12 weeks of no painkillers, which is horrible. Um, and they sort of think, well, I don't know if it's going yeah. to work. And you, you don't know if it's going to work until you stop the medication. And it can be, it, it's, it's, the key is to try not to get into that situation so that we don't have to try and get you out of it. Because it's, it's none of us like doing it. Yeah. I think, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think, I can imagine why that range is so wide because people would be quite reluctant to. And I think also the psychological stress of taking away a painkiller, your expectation of pain is going mm. to go up and then that's going to have a, an, an erroneous mm. result as well. I, I w- wanted to talk a little bit about the, the physiology behind and the mechanism behind migraines themselves. So what do we know in terms of, is there a genetic link? Is there, uh, are there other mechanisms that perhaps people aren't aware of behind why so many people have them in the first place? There's definitely, definitely a genetic link, definitely. Um, not everybody can point to their uh, family members that they've inherited it from, but there's, we know that there's at least 40 genes that are involved. And what, how I explain it to people is that the genes set your brain to be always a little bit more sensitive to sensory changes in your, uh, and changes in your internal environment or your external environment all the time whether or not you're having an attack. So your brain is, doesn't deal with change. Um, but whether you get a migraine or not depends on environmental factors. So it's not all about the genes. Um, so if things are changing mm. in your body or in your surroundings, and that could be things like hormones or blood sugar, sleep patterns, stress hormones going up, or stress hormones coming down. So sometimes we have people saying, well, I get them at the weekend when I relax. <laughs> uh, or it can be things like stuffy rooms. I used to be really sensitive to candles burning and that sort of, I used to get one at the end of partners meetings where my colleague had put lovely candles to make a nice relaxing atmosphere and I'd come away going, oh my goodness, my head is banging now. <laughs> um, but also barometric pressure. So there's lots of different factors that can change and so that's why people are, are sort of hunting desperately saying to us, you know, I couldn't find the thing that caused it. And it's because it isn't the thing. It's the group of mm. things and it can change. The group of things can change. Um, so, for example, a peak time to get it is in teenage. I was speaking to some teenagers yesterday and one of them um, was much better since the lockdown because he didn't have to get up in the morning. He did had finished his huge growth spurt he had uh, been able to sleep a bit longer he was eating more regularly all those kind of things can Mm. make a massive difference and I was speaking to an adult um, who had the same thing he'd his work stress had changed so the lockdown in some people has been helpful because it's reduced the amount of change but in other people it's added a level of tension and sort of more screens and less exercise and maybe more more cakes and biscuits to comfort eat so yeah it it's it's about that but we think what's happening in the brain is that um the irritations are triggering the production of neurochemicals so there are lots of neurochemicals mm-hmm. and one in particular has been studied recently called the calcitonin gene related peptide and that's we can talk about medications directly targeted at that later on, if you like. 
And once their level, once the level of the pain chemicals has reached a certain height, it triggers uh, electrophysiological changes. So each cell has an electrical charge across the cell membrane and that changes and that rolls out over the brain. And so depending on where that rolls to depends on what kind of symptoms that person gets. So some people will get visual aura because they get it in their occipital area of their brain, the vision part. Other people might get hemiplegic symptoms where they have weakness of one side because the changes are over that part of the brain, which is what makes it such a variable condition. And it can change for one person from attack to attack. Some people will get very dizzy sometimes, but then mm. other times they'll get more of the headache part. Um, and it's uh, and it can change throughout a person's life. So we see people saying, oh, I used to get aura, but I never get it now, um, or vice versa. So it's, yeah, it's, it's basically your brain is reacting to changes. And I always think of it as a... Because everyone always says, do I, do I need a scan? Do I need a scan? I always think of it as a, a problem with the wiring, not the computer itself. So the brain is actually usually fine, but the mm. wires get these neurochemical, these neurochemicals that are released, get them overexcited, I think mm. is the best way to put it. And mm. people with migraine are very sensitive to their surroundings when they have attacks. So again, according to which nerves are overexcited. So that smell, that smell sensitivity, I don't know why I went with smell first, smell sensitivity, um, um, photosensitivity or um, sensitivity to light, motion sensitivity. The nausea is because you're, you get your vagus nerve, which is that long wandering nerve, gets stimulated and causes gastric stasis. So it's all because those nerves get, get overexcited. And um, essentially what we try and do is find a way of calming them down. <laughs> so we either do that with medication or mm. by preventing those neurochemicals from being released in the first place. We we talk um, about the threshold, don't we, Jess? Of the, yeah. So the thing sort of adding together <laughs> yeah. and pushing the brain to such an irritable state that it then hits a threshold for the migraine. And so what we're trying to do with the, with the preventative treatments is to push the threshold further away. And there are some things people can do themselves to make that threshold further away, and that's by taking control of their routine, which is a bit boring. <laughs> Go to bed at the same time. So boring. Wake at the same time. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't find that boring at all. I think it's brilliant. <laughs> and I, I love that word that you used, actually, threshold there, because um, in my mind, I feel like everyone has different mm. thresholds by which they have that electrochemical potential that spills over and causes that almost chain reaction throughout the whole brain in different areas that can lead to uh, distinct symptoms. And in my mind, it was like, okay, you have a threshold, everyone's threshold is individual, we want to try and keep you in that area under the curve that maintains homeostasis yeah. and balance. But can you, do you think people can Absolutely. change their oh, thresholds yeah. as well? Yeah. So I think the reason wow. that people find it difficult to identify their triggers is because that threshold moves. So having one migraine pushes that threshold down a bit further, which is why you're in that that juxtaposition where you don't want to take too many painkillers, but you want to manage your migraines so that you're less likely to push the threshold down. Um, and that's mm. why people find it very difficult to identify their trigger. So um, some triggers are more potent than others and they're very variable. They, they differ from person to person. So I always hate these lists of these are migraine triggers and these are what trigger for everybody because it's so individual. But um, Essentially, mm. people will find that they're doing exactly the same things one year and they're having no migraines. And then in the next year, they're having migraines really frequently. And they'll say, but I haven't changed anything. I'm eating the same. My environment's the same. My job's the same. And it's because their thresholds dropped. So they're always encountering these triggers. But 
because their threshold's lower, they're being pushed over the line more and they're having symptoms. Whereas that year previously, when they weren't having attack, they weren't going up to the line or going anywhere near it. So they were absolutely fine. And I think that's quite important to understand because otherwise people will look for the new things or try and cut things out. And actually, it's it really is doing the boring things that's important. We're big fans at the centre of talking to people, not just about medication, because it's so much more they can do. So we, I always start by saying, right, one of the biggest things that irritates your brain is not having a constant supply of fuel and eating regularly, having regular snacks having uh, we're quite keen Jessica and I'm both very keen on talking about healthy diet and nutrition and and trying to um, reduce the carbohydrates so there's quite a lot of evidence that reducing carbohydrates in the diet can be very helpful for migraine and and even keto diets uh, isn't it Jess it's quite restrictive though it's quite restrictive some people have done it I had I have had a couple of patients who found it's really helpful because the theory is that it produces ketone bodies that are anti-inflammatory um, but if people can't manage to do that, even just changing the carb balance. So I had a lady a few weeks ago and she really, really paid attention to reducing the carbs. She was a real fizzy drink guzzler and cakes and biscuits. Yeah. And over three months, she reduced her migraine from 15 migraine days a month down to about one and dropped two dress sizes. And she was simply yeah. so happy that that was the main thing she'd done. You know, And I think people Amazing. underestimate that and there's no time in neurological outpatients to go into it and there's very little time in gp surgeries to go into those they they say to people do you eat regularly and everybody says yes because we all eat regularly but that might be well i never have breakfast or you know i go through i I learned from katie (laughs) i learned from katie that you have to ask about individual meal timing so i always see her letters she's written breakfast 9am and I sort of think oh okay so I, I, I used to just ask about the evening meal but actually because that gap how long are you having between meals are you having things in between what are you having and Katie's also a big fan of cat she's well, not a big fan she's a big fiend about caffeine as well so um oh she's well yes always I asking do talk about, about caffeine, caffeine. <laughs> yeah quite a lot yeah yeah well, well let, let's double click on the the diet uh, element there as well so glucose uh, regulation and glucose stability sounds like it's one of the most important things and one of the sort of strategies i guess or tactics is to adopt a uh, diet that is low in refined carbohydrates and maintains that sort of glucose level um you mentioned regularity of meals um what what kind of foods are we talking about are things that people should be aware of not to eat too much or in excess uh, versus the ones that we should be getting more of in our diet and i'd love to talk a bit more about the ketogenic well i i don't get too bogged down because everybody's different with their dietary preferences so if you're too restricted i think a lot of people have tried um the so-called migraine diets where you cut out every single thing that could possibly trigger your diet your migraine but of course there are no convincing studies that have found that there is a particular food that you have to avoid to reduce a migraine so people have cut out wheat cut out dairy cut out this that cut out bananas cut out oh goodness knows what we just say no 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 look at the balance of carbs and protein and fat protein and fat are your friends carbs are not your friends so i basically Mm. say to them avoid white things that you eat in your diet apart from cauliflower (laughs) so bread (laughs) white bread potatoes uh pasta pizza cakes biscuits sugar all of those kind of things we not cut them out completely but 
reduce them so that you're cutting your portion in half. So you might have, I usually go to spag bol or curry and rice and say, if you're having the spaghetti bolognese, mm. half the spaghetti, twice as much of the sauce, put some extra cheese on the top. But then of course people go, oh, I'm vegan or oh, I'm allergic, you know. Nuts yeah. and seeds <laughs> are really, really good snacks. Nuts and seeds, very healthy, good things to take. Um, avocados, um, dairy products, as long as you're not vegan. Um, I, yeah. I think gluten is a is a tricky one, and some people are definitely more sensitive to gluten and not necessarily celiac. So it's a bit of their taking yeah. them to a place where they feel they can find a diet that suits them. That's along those kind of much broader guidelines. I think. Would you agree? I think Jess? I want is to also address you... the yeah. I, I I kind of wanted to address the cheese, chocolate, citrus specific food trigger myths as well. Um, and I, yeah, yeah, I, I hate, well, well, no, I don't hate it. It's my pet hate, actually, people coming in and saying, I've cut out cheese. I haven't eaten cheese for years. And I think, oh, that's really, I mean, I can't eat cheese because I am I am lactose intolerant, but that's different. It's not because of my migraines. <laughs> um, but I feel so bad for people that have cut out all of these these specific things because the reasons that people think that they, the, the reasons people that cheese, chocolate, citrus and other foods came up in the list is because, um, when people were initially writing their migraine diaries down, they'd, they'd look at about two hours before they'd have an attack and they'd say, oh, I'm always having cheese or chocolate or, I mean, chocolate digestive is the thing I always have two hours before my, my migraines, actually. Um, and to say, well, that must be what's triggering my attack. But we now know that migraines actually start 12 to 24 hours before your pain phase starts. Um, so what's happening two hours before isn't your trigger. Oh. Actually, we also know that blood glucose levels drop around two hours before your migraine attack. So what happens is people crave things that will push up blood sugar levels, orange juice, chocolate, cheese, salty things as well. Some people would crave those. They will push your blood sugar up. So, um, and there are good reasons why cutting out, but as Katie said, cutting out chocolate, you're probably stabilizing your blood sugar level a lot more. And similarly, possibly with cheese, if you're having a lot of it, you, people possibly are being a bit more careful about their blood sugar level. So cutting those out may have improved their migraines, but it's not the specific foods. It's more about the type of diet they're adopting and its effect on their blood sugar levels rather than the foods themselves. Gotcha. That's super interesting. And I think that that definitely, I, I'm glad you said that because I think most people will think about their uh, diet in very binary terms of like this ingredient yeah. versus that ingredient. But it, you're right, it's the orchestra of different foods and it's the holistic picture of what you eat over weeks and months rather than on a on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, with regards to the ketogenic diet, so I had a, a colleague of mine who's a, a specialist dietitian and one of the only registered dietitians that prescribes the ketogenic diet for uh, refractory epilepsy oh. treatment uh, in children. Um, they're also involved in a couple of studies looking at GBM of patients who have actually opted into trying a ketogenic diet of their own accord and just recording outcomes. Um, what I'd love to know about is the any evidence base around pain management um, with ketogenic diets, because like you alluded to, Katie, there was a, uh, a suggestion that ketone bodies are, are involved in improvement of, of, of pain perception. There was a trial in Italy. Uh, it's a small trial. Um, it was a Nokia Institute um, in Italy did a trial which showed that I think people were either assigned to the very low ketogenic diet or the key, or the very low carbohydrate diet, sorry, or the ketogenic diet. And people on the keto diet had approximately a 30% improvement in their uh, migraine, free, um, their number of migraine days. 
Um, so that is that they're now using that to do more research into it because as I said it was a small study it wasn't particularly I don't think the methodology was brilliant but actually I I think that's that's quite a good mm. indication but I do believe there are actually there is actually evidence about epilepsy in children so some type, forms of refractory epilepsy the fact that ketone bodies can reduce inflammation so I think that they're sort of it is it, a difficult I think it's quite a difficult thing to do to do studies on actually it's not it's not as easy as doing it on medications where you've got sort of an x and a y you know you've mm. got placebo and x you can't really placebo mm. ketone diets and <laughs> um, no. so I think it's really hard to get good quality evidence on it um, and also some people don't get on with it at all um you know some people tolerate mm. it really well I've had I've had friends who've done it from a fitness point of view and some of them have loved it and some of them have absolutely hated it and lasted about a week before they've gone off it and mm. so I suspect dropout rates are quite high for that kind of trial as well um mm. so I think to get yeah good quality as, as good quality evidence as we do for some of the medications um is going to be very difficult I think and, and pain studies are notoriously difficult to mm. get good quality evidence on anyway yeah I can imagine I mean like and the side effects from a ketogenic diet is huge I mean nausea and bad breath are just like some of the the milder side effects compared to constipation and um the restrictive nature of it as well so it's um yeah it's an interesting topic I think um that probably warrants a little bit more attention or research but one that um is is quite unevidence-based at the moment I actually I actually tried it myself because I like to try things if I'm recommending them you know within reason um so I tried it, but it was a week or two before we were going to the um, Dublin Headache Conference. And so I was being scrupulous and weighing out everything and making sure the fat percentages were all right. And I felt really awful um, because I think I was in that keto <laughs> flu bit, you know, that first couple of weeks. Flu, and then of course yeah. you go to a conference and, you and it's almost impossible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you just you just can't do it. It was very hard. So and yeah, so I, I so I'm very aware that we can say things to patients, but it has to be something that's realistic for them to try that they feel that some belief in or some motivation mm. to do it. And the other thing I say to people is if you genuinely are sensitive to a particular food and every single time you have it, you feel bad, don't eat that food. But there's no studies to prove which one of those foods it's likely to be. So, but I, I think it is um, well, something that a lot of our patients have looked into. And then, of course, there are these other diets, which are very popular now, which are like the 5-2 diet or the 16-hour fast diet. Yeah. And people say, mm. oh, I'm trying that. And you think, well, actually, if you're fasting. So I, you know, some people may get away with those kind of diets if they're in a phase where their threshold is high. But if they're in a mm. phase where their brain is mm. very irritable, then I would really guard against that because you will get big. The whole point of it is to get swings in your blood sugar so that your body goes into repair oh. mode. Uh, and I think when your brain is very irritable, mm. then that's not the time to try those kind of diets. Yeah, I, I, I was um, interviewing Volta Longo, who's the uh, proponent of the FMD, yeah. who's the fasting mimicking diet, more so from yeah. type 2 diabetes yeah. and um, longevity, yeah. uh, longevity perspective. But I, I, I imagine if your goal with a diet that is um, useful for those who have migraines is to maintain glucose uh, balance, then having those vast mm. swings, particularly if you're coming from a diet that isn't perfect and then you automatically go yeah. into a, a fasting mimicking yeah. regime yeah. or a 5-2 diet or intermittent fasting, then those swings are going to potentially yeah. exacerbate migraines. I is think that, so. Is that yeah. right in saying mm. that? 
And because I have had a couple of patients who've tried intermittent fasting for other reasons and and their migraines got worse and I've said please avoid it because I, I I like I I'm not an, I'm not against intermittent fasting at all I no, think no. It's, but it's that whole it's that whole one size fits all that fits all mentality just doesn't work because there is just no particularly with nutrition there's not one thing that works for every condition so I always advise, I advise people with migraine to avoid it where they can yeah. Are there um, any other elements of the diet uh, with regard to specific additives that might be irritant? Um, ones I know that, you know, there are certain migraine diets that remove like citrus and coca, uh, cacao and all the rest of it. But are there particular additives, perhaps MSG or aspartamine or nitrates and cured meats that, I mean, that are shown to be irritant? We're or? both pulling faces because we wouldn't want to... We don't want to eat that stuff. <laughs> I'm a great fan. I'm a big fan of buy your ingredients and know what's in your food. You know, don't yeah. don't buy processed foods. Yeah. Don't you know? Start reading the labels. Know what you're putting in your mouth because if you're eating a lot of diet things here you know, with a lot of sweetness in it, I mean that's not to me. That's not a great idea. And your body, I think fizzy drinks that people say. Oh, well, I only have the diet version. Mm your body can still give an insulin mm. surge uh, as a result of a, a, a sweetener. Um, so, yeah I, yeah, I keep it a bit... I'm a bit more mm. purist in ingredients, really. <laughs> I, I am going to yeah, talk about caffeine, though, because I do love to talk about caffeine. <laughs> so caffeine is really interesting with migraine because it, it's a goodie and a baddie. So some people definitely sensitive to caffeine. Uh, and some people will say, oh, you know, definitely if I get if I have a coffee, I'll get a migraine. But we find if you if you have a say you had four or five cups of coffee a day, you can get caffeine overuse headache. If you then stop it suddenly, you can get caffeine withdrawal headaches. But if you're not overusing mm. it, and by that I mean having maybe one coffee in the morning, not after lunch because it will affect your sleep, then you're sensitive to it. Then when you start to get a migraine, having caffeine with your painkillers can be really helpful to help the painkillers work because it has a partial painkilling effect. So it's mm. really interesting, but you have to be really careful with caffeine, I think. And particularly, I don't know why this is, but um, we seem to find that some people with vestibular migraine do yeah. much better if they just cut it out completely. Mm. But I always yeah. say do things gently. Treat your brain gently. You don't want to be doing anything rapidly. So small changes over a long period of time. This goes for medication as well. Start low, increase slowly. We have sometimes patients that come in and say, oh, I went right in at the top dose of this preventer. And you think, yeah. oh, yeah. that was brave. You know, start yeah. slow, build it up yeah. gently. <laughs> <laughs> Just uh, treat your brain calmly and gently and it will thank you for it <laughs> i like the way you said that like you know treating your brain gently because uh, i think most people like you said would make uh, a plan and then go headfirst into it and i think if you're doing so many things at the same time you, you, your body's going to react to it and sometimes in a negative way i always tell the story when it comes to caffeine so i was uh I was working in Australia at the time. I was working in um, A&E. And, and as you both know, we have a clinical decision unit or sometimes known as the extended observation unit where uh, if your patient is going to take a little bit extra time to, to sort out, either to be admitted or treated and discharged, we admit them there. So we admitted um, this uh, young lady there. Um, uh, she had fevers and a whole bunch of other things. She ended up having an intra-abdominal infection. 
But uh, about 12 or 16 hours into her stay, she suddenly developed this huge headache, overnight stay, huge headache. And we were all like wondering, oh God, are we, are we missing something? Is this a meningitis? Mm. Is this, you know, are we gonna have to do an LP, et cetera? Um, and I remember I was there with my consultant and we went through the whole history. And I just asked her like, how much, and I was living in Australia and everyone, it's a coffee mm. drinking culture. Like, how many coffees do you usually drink a day? And she said five. And I was like, you haven't had a coffee since being here, have you? Because you're nearby mouth. She said, yeah. And and honestly, yeah. that has oh, stuck God. with yeah. me like so clearly because it was like, ah, she's having a withdrawal yeah. headache. It's not yeah. like, and luckily, you know, it was a withdrawal That's good. headache. Hopefully you got yeah. to save her an LP as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Her, uh, exactly. Low pressure headache yeah. on top. <laughs> and for exactly, exactly. Yeah. And for listeners who, who are wondering what an LP is, the lumbar puncture, it's a, uh, a procedure we do to look at the cerebrospinal fluid and, and look for um, blood and, and infections as well. Um, so I'm glad we digressed that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, caffeine uh, and um, and sugar balance, super important. Um, I wanted to ask a general question about inflammation. Um, that there's a few things that I think I've come across from patients asking about omega-3 versus omega-6 uh, imbalances. Um, and whether you think there's any evidence about the uh, preponderance of arachidonic acid, which is the long chain O6, which can cause uh, inflammation in a systemic manner. But I'm wondering if there's any relationship um, with, with migraines or other types of headaches for that matter. I don't know. I don't know of any studies on it. Um, I don't. I think there's a lot of interest in omega three and omega six. Certainly, I've been interested in chronic pain even before I was a headache specialist, and there was certainly a lot of interest in improving the omega three levels. And the problem is that you, if you go into Boots or one of the pharmacists, you can pick up any kind of combination of omega three, omega three and six, omega three, six and nine, and people are like, well, which? Oh, it's got more things. It must be better. <laughs> so I'm a, quite a purist in saying, well, if you're going to take omega-3 you need to just take omega-3 and you can do that through dietary methods you can do it through supplements if you wish but I don't think there's any studies that I'm aware of that say that there is a significant impact on migraine headaches but we do know of three supplements that Mm. do have some study evidence although we'd like there to be more studies on these things because I think people really prefer not to have medication Um, so the three are magnesium Uh, vitamin B2 or riboflavin and coenzyme Q10 and all of those have been studied uh, a a while ago to see and and some improvement in some people we always have to say that nothing works for everybody some some improvement in some people Um, (laughs) but they're safe and you have to take them for at least three months in quite high doses to to see if they're effective we haven't got studies to know whether it's better to take one or two or three so it's it's a kind of okay. personal choice, I think, really, then. And it comes down to funding as much as anything. Some of these supplements you mm-hmm. can spend a lot of money on. Yeah. yeah. And there's also some small evidence, actually, on probiotics as yeah. well. So they're doing lots of studies on um, oh, probiotics and migraines. So I'm sure you've spoken about probiotics before. Yeah. Doing <laughs> nutrition podcast. But um, there's the whole point yeah. about the fact that the the different bacteria in your gut... Um, can release different release different neurotransmitters. Um, there's this whole brain around the gut, and we've already established that there's clearly a big link between migraine, brain symptoms, and gut symptoms. Children get abdominal migraine. People get abdominal symptoms too. So that I suspect that um, 
I think we all suspect that that brain around the gut has a, that neurological system has a big part to play, and they believe that changing that that they, there's some evidence that changing the makeup of of the um, gut bacteria can actually improve migraines. Um, it's very low level evidence, and it was the actual it was the company that produced the probiotic that did the study. Um, yeah. I think we hope that, but they are, there's a lot of interest in doing wider studies. Um, as one of those ones that I do, if, if people have tried lots of things, may have IBS type symptoms too, I will probably say try this one type of um, probiotic and because it's not going to give you side effects. So there's no sort of harmful effects from it um, for three months, which seems to be the magic number for trying any type of migraine pre- um, preventative. Um, yeah. And then you won't have, lo- I mean, apart from the fact that it can be expensive, you won't have lost too much from trying it. And actually some people have found there have been benefit from it. That's brilliant. I mean, is there a particular strain of probiotic? Um, I can't remember which three are in it. No, I think well. the jury's out on that, actually, as well, because yeah. I think there's so many different mm-hmm. probiotics. And then I was uh, I was at a conference recently about depression and uh, the gut and microbiome and things, and I think there's a lot of interest in the mm-hmm. overlap between depression and, and migraine and pain and all these kind of things. Uh, and they were talking mm-hmm. a lot more about prebiotic foods feeding the variety of your Mm. gut bugs so uh, the message was more that it's important to eat a wide variety of vegetables as many and we had a chat to somebody who'd been to another uh, microbiome conference and he was saying you have to eat 30 different vegetable types in a week Mm. Uh, and some my daughter misheard and thought he'd said 30 a day and she was like oh my goodness but no it's 30 (laughs) so uh, the old adage of eat a rainbow you know many different colors and and types of vegetables um i think that's probably the most healthy way to encourage your gut flora and and i think there'll be more and more um discoveries about that in the next few years i suspect because it's a real hot topic at the moment I agree. Yeah, I, I imagine like a migraine diet, if you if you like, just being one that is incredibly colourful and cl- incredibly diverse. So, like you said, you've got those pre prebiotics, which are the um, uh, fermentable fibres and, and specialised fibres that nurture your gut microbes, um, with the potential of maybe some probiotics. I know Gr- John Kramer is doing some incredible research with him and his team, and uh, I think it's Cork uh, in Ireland. I've read some of the papers looking at psychobiotics, mm-hmm. which is this new term about the use of potential um, symbiotics, so pro and prebiotics in a formula that nurtures certain microbes that might be beneficial in um, uh, types of mental health issues. Um, but the jury, like you said, the jury is very much out on these things. And it's interesting to talk about, um, but I think there's so much you can do with yeah. diet alone, which is which is fabulous. Um, those, those supplements are fantastic. Uh, with regards to magnesium, I know there's different types of magnesium. Um, is there a particular type of magnesium that is better or is it just based on the bioavailability? We are always, the, the we are always debating this. <laughs> so um, I think <laughs> I always suggest, and I've probably because I've tried, again, like Katie, I try and try things if I were feasible. Um, I found magnesium citrate tablets. They were like horse tablets, essentially. They were huge. Um, so, But they are slightly <laughs> better absorbed. And I'm not, I'm such a bad patient. I'm terrible at taking tablets. I'm, I am bad doctors make terrible patients so i'm the <laughs> proof to be honest yeah um so i tend to say or if you can get magnesium malate they, they're available in capsules and 
but actually any magnesium that's well tolerated so the ones that have a better bioavailability the ones that are going to give you fewer um gut symptoms so less loose stools bloating pain which can be the symptom of taking magnesium and you want high dose so i say between 400 and 600 milligrams it's all about how much you tolerate um because a lot of the side effects are dose dependent um and i don't really like people getting too het up on oh i must take my two tablets you know if you can get one that's got roughly you know if it's got 500 milligrams great if it's got 400 that's fine too um but there's no specific sort of compound type of magnesium that um i'd particularly suggest i think i'd agree there's the studies were on gotcha. magnesium citrate and they were on yeah. 600 milligrams but if you go straight uh -huh. in at 600 milligrams then the patients will spend a lot of their day cursing you as they are in the toilet because it really is. Yeah. <laughs> it can have some quite dramatic... Now, if they need that kind of effect, it can be very helpful. So it's, again, yeah. it's about personal <laughs> choice. And um, there's a bisglycinate format. And a lot of... Um, so I speak to quite a number of patients with um, chronic pain and, and the malate forms and the bisglycinate forms seem to be quite easily bioavailable and less laxative. Um, but it's, yeah, trial and error, really. I had spoke to somebody yesterday who was taking a liquid ionic form and she found that suited her much better. But uh, there are no studies about which particular, nobody wants to invest money in spending, uh, you know, doing studies on supplements, really. I think the motto from, for all of those is just to keep going at the dose that you tolerate, just keep going mm. because people want a quick fix. And with all of the things we're talking about in terms of changes um, in lifestyle or supplements or medications, it's going to take at least three months before you can judge if it's working. So a lot of times people are coming and saying, well, I tried this for two weeks. It didn't work. So we stopped. And um, you have to be a little bit patient yeah. and just go, keep going. Yeah, I, I think... I think doctors and patients alike are, lack a lot of patience. I, I, <laughs> from my own experience, like we tried something, didn't work after a week. We live in this world of instant gratification. If it's not working after a week, I'm going to quit it. I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to bother. But pe people just yeah. need to be reminded, ourselves included, that it, everything takes time. Um, and, and I always think if you're thinking about it as actually raising that threshold that's not going to happen quickly like you can't you can't push it up quickly yeah. it feels like the migraines happened very quickly but actually it's probably been gradually building for ages so i think i, I always think of it that can be a bit more helpful in in the patient's building yeah. definitely um you describe this as the boring stuff but i actually find this stuff <laughs> yeah so do we stuff, uh, which is lifestyle <laughs> yeah, in general yeah, yeah. <laughs> so exercise sleep uh stress reduction mm -hmm. techniques why don't we dive in with sleep because i think sleep is something that we all uh suffer with i personally average around six mm -hmm. and a half hours a night which is not enough for me because i know how i feel after seven or eight consecutively i feel amazing so i really try my hardest to try and uh, improve my sleep quality but what do we know about sleep in relation to migraine um uh, uh management. again it's the boring stuff <laughs> so it's, the amount of sleep you get is important but actually having too much or too little is a problem with migraine you need to be consistent so it's the routine so going to bed and waking up at the same time is really important and shifts of an hour either way going to bedtime or waking up time um can trigger migraine attacks so times that tend to be bad are um 
around the clock changes. I remember we did a Thursday tip actually around the October clock change um, where we were saying, oh, you might all find that your migraines get worse. And lots of people replied and said, yeah, actually every time the clocks change, they get worse. And you think, yeah, it's, and it's because you can't do anything about the fact that your body clock shifts an hour. And it's similar. One of the reasons why traveling causes a problem, because if you're shifting your sleep routine, um, that that can people can find on the on the second day of, of traveling somewhere. If they're going, if, they, if they're traveling to a different time zone, they might be more likely to get attacks. I think that there was a study that showed that uh, people with migraine generally need a little bit more sleep probably than than other people and i often emphasize the the bit that jessica mentioned which is that extended sleep is really not your friend because so the teenagers don't like that really but it's having a regular set amount of sleep is much better for your brain and if you so i spoke to somebody yesterday and he said the one one of the things that jumped out from my first consultation was that you told me that i shouldn't have extended periods of sleep and he said i've I would always assume that if I felt really tired, I should just sleep for as long as I can. But then I'd have another migraine then the day or the day after that. We quite often find that kids will have a migraine on a Monday because they've had a long lie-in at the weekend and it takes their brain a day or two before the migraine reveals itself. So just by putting in that sort of routine. The other thing I was um, I always say to people is I don't know how anybody travels with that. Anybody who's got migraine, how they ever travel, because when you think of the changes, you're excited or stressed. You then have to get up in the middle of the night to go to some airport, which is loud and bright and glaring and noise. And then you're in a stuffy aeroplane and then you land in a different time zone. I mean, Mind you, with the with the way the world is now, we may not be doing that so much. So maybe that will <laughs> yeah. that'll make a difference. <laughs> but yeah, all these. I have to say that's something with lockdown that's made a difference. People's sleep has been. There's been loads of uh, reports of sleep disturbances during yeah. um, during the pandemic lockdown, and I've definitely seen that with people with migraine. They'll say, "I just can't sleep," and and there is this thing about the brain being active. Um, more during the day you have less of that commute that dead time that commuting time where your brain's not really doing very much or um or doing things in between tasks if you're just sitting in one place all the time um you're not exercising as much generally if you're not even walking around as Katie said earlier um people are finding it much more difficult to sleep um so they're getting shorter amounts of sleep the sleep quality is probably not as good and some people's routines are off because they're lying in bed for ages trying to get to sleep not managing it did that age old, oh, I've only got half an hour, I've only got a few hours until I wake up, oh, now I've only got three hours, now I've only got two. Um, and I think that's affected people a lot during um, during lockdown too, from a migraine point of view. There's also something about, um, we had a very interesting uh, study day, which was from some of the sleep doctors at Guys and St mm-hmm. Thomas's the other day, who were amazing, inspirational. And they were talking to us mm-hmm. about uh, not training your brain to think that your bed is the place that you play games on your computer or check your emails or do yeah. watch videos or whatever, because uh, a bit like the Pavlovian reflex with the dog salivating at the sound of the bell, if you get into bed and your brain is trained to think, oh, here's where I watch the telly and you know catch up with the latest yeah. episode of Killing Eve or whatever it is, 
you're not going to be in the right frame of mind. So they suggested that you take all of those activities to a little comfy nest somewhere. So if you're living in one room, you know, let's face it, a lot of people trapped in a lockdown in very small environments with not much choice of where they do things, um, to try and make a little nest somewhere with pillows and a blanket. And then when you feel drowsy, you go to your bed. So your brain goes, oh, this is where I sleep. Um, and yeah. this is all mm. part of a technique called CBT for insomnia. So cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia seems to be the really good way of retraining yeah. the behaviors and looking at what you're doing. That's giving your body the signals to stay awake rather than to go to sleep. So I think there's a lot that, that can be done. But fixing the waking up time seemed to be also very key. So we sometimes think, well, I've got to go to bed at the same time. Mm. But actually making yourself get up in the morning and getting out into the daylight and getting some uh, signals to your brain that it is now daytime. Because, of course, if you stay in a dark place the whole day, your, your brain is very confused whether it's day or night. Um, and then um, mm. spending some time winding down for that hour before you are going to try and sleep. So you're not doing rushing around and you don't do your exercise just before you're going to get into bed, for example. So lots of little tricks that can make your sleep quality a lot better. And that always mm. helps with migraine, I think. It's, it's about, not just about the quantity of the sleep, it's about the restorative nature of the sleep because we know there's a system in the brain called the glymphatic system where you have to be asleep for that to clear out mm. the toxins from your thinking and, and activities that your brain's been doing through the night so you do need to look after that as well i think it's very important yeah I, i'm getting the impression that with a lot of these things it's um routine and consistency so you know if you're getting up at a certain amount at a certain time a day you're exposing yourself to natural light you're resetting your circadian yeah. rhythm every day and you're getting into that sort of pattern um, that's brilliant. And I'm glad you picked, you, you made a point about the glymphatic system um, and the quality of your sleep. I, I've uh, been using an aura ring um, for a couple of years now, just because I'm fascinated by tracking um, and just to see what impact certain activities have on my sleep. And I know that if I exercise or if I have more than a glass of wine before I go to bed, my sleep quality yeah. massively yeah. disrupted. Um, and even though sleep tracking devices aren't fantastically accurate at all, it can give you a mm -hmm. picture of trends. Uh, and so just that insight for me personally, that's been quite um, quite good from behavior change actually, uh, and, and definitely improved my sleep quality. Um, you mentioned CBT, which is a beautiful segue into, it's almost like this is scripted. <laughs> <laughs> it's a beautiful segue into stress management. Um, uh, and CBT obviously has multiple uses, but uh, I, I was interested to, to learn about its impact on, on uh, migraine uh, sufferers. Yeah, I mean, um, stress, I always think stress gets a very bad name in migraine because I think a lot of people blame mm. migraine on stress and it's just one of the many factors. Actually, any emotion can do it. And actually, if you've got high levels of stress all the time, you're less likely, when your stress levels are high, you're less likely to have, be having lots of migraines. It's when they're dipping up and down that the, the problem occurs and that's largely a hormonal response of a cortisol um, sort of response. Um there is, there is actually very good evidence for CBT in, in all types of pain, but it really can be helpful in, in, um, in migraine management, particularly where people have um, coexisting anxiety or depression. And 
if people have people have any kind of chronic pain condition the, the likelihood of having coexisting anxiety and depression is high because it's it's awful having having migraines all the time um and not being able to do your usual mm. things and cbt can be really really useful for that so it can be useful in actually how to manage the pain itself but also how to to deal with the stress levels you're having manage your anxiety manage your um anxiety symptoms and sort of retrain the brain so that you're you're less likely to to go that way um so i'm i mean i'm a big fan of cbt for most things i have to say i sort of i sort of feel like Mm. everybody should have cbt at one point in their life whether or not they have any kind of problems i just think it would be quite useful for life management um but actually i I, i'm often um advising people to um to 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 self-refer or try cbt for them for help their migraines I think the other one that we often recommend is mindfulness as well and meditation and, uh, you know, or yoga Mm. breathing or simple relaxation breathing techniques. Any of those kind of places where you can learn how to or practice, because I do think you have to practice some of these things to get good at them. It's practice just to focus on now and what's happening now and uh, and that calming effect of noticing that, you know, what's around you, what's within you, what your body's feeling like, uh, seems to, I mean, they've done some studies on people having scans while they're doing mindfulness, and it does seem that that quietens down those activated pain areas in the brain. And so, but people people will sometimes say, well, I can't do it because my brain starts chattering at me. And, and of course, that's what everybody's brain does, because as soon as you're sitting quietly, your brain starts throwing up all sorts of little thoughts and and things which you can either fix on and go, oh, yes, what shall I have to dinner tonight? Or you can or you can go, oh, no, hang on. I'm meant to be looking and thinking about my breathing and concentrating. So it does take practice. But I think it's part of the solution. I think why stress gets a bad name is because people feel dismissed. Um, and when they go and they talk to their doctors about, mm. oh, I'm having these terrible headaches or I'm having, you know, I think it might be migraine. They say, oh, it's probably stress, which means I'll oh, go away and, and, and mm. you know, deal with it, cope better. And it's very, it can feel very judgmental. It's probably not meant that way, but I think people feel like they've been told, well, you're not a strong mm. enough person, go away and, and pull yourself together. And that's really harmful, I think. I think that harks back to the so the we've done a lot of reading on history of migraine as well, and um, there I mean in the in, in the, before I think nineteen eighty nine it was in the um, DSM four which is the psychiatric um, for, for listeners who don't know it's the psychiatric um, uh, list of, um, of of medical problems so psychiatric problems not a medical problem so migraine was always thought of as the housewives disease and I actually had a patient um, who sadly still gets migraines even though she's in her 80s and I saw her a few months ago and she said I was told um, when I, I had to I had to ask my neighbour to look after my to pick my children up from school one day and she came up to me and she said when are you going to pull yourself together and be a proper mother and stop using your migraines as an excuse and she said and that stuck with me and then my doctor told me it was a housewife's ailment and I thought oh you know, and I think there is still a lot of that that's carried forward. And I think that's why when people say, oh, it's stress, it, it's it's that sort of, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. I mean, if you just calmed down or if you just, you know, just bucked up your ideas, then you'd be fine. And it is, it's, it's far more complicated than that. In the Victorian times, I think it was it, it was divided into um, 
men who got migraine were the clever ones, the cerebral ones, you know, the very intellectual types. And women who got migraine were the flaky ones who fainted and were pathetic. And I think that stigma has persisted. And I think that's part of why we really struggle to get it taken notice of when you think that it's considered to be, you know, right up there in in the top disabling conditions in the world. Um, and the years lived mm. with disability, you know, it's the second most common cause of years li- lived with disability in, in all the gradings, the WHO gradings. Mm. But yet it's not recognised properly. And people, you know, get dismissed and get this kind yeah. of this feeling of shame or guilt that they've mm. got migraine. And so they, going back to what we were talking about earlier about, you know, going to work and not letting on, people pitch up at work and this thing called presenteeism where they, they go to work, but they've got a migraine. So they're not working to their full potential when they should actually be at home caring for their migraine, getting rid of it, and then going back into work at 100%. And, that, and then no, so many mm. migraine sufferers push through. I've done it myself. I've sat through doing oh, GP too. surgeries. Yeah sitting very, very still. Mm. <laughs> and as soon as the patients yeah. have finished, I stand and go, oh, gosh, you know, I don't tend to do that now. I'd learned oh. better. But... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's terrible. I, I was just going to say, like, the, the, the word stress itself is just this huge umbrella yeah. term that has so many nuances to it. Yeah. It's kind of, um, it's very vague, I think. And I think it deserves a lot more sort of um, refinement in, in the way we use mm. it as well. Because like you said, it's kind of like a, a flagrant use of the term. Oh, it's it's, it's just yeah. stress or it's, yes. it's probably stress. So, yeah. you know, I can't help with that. You need to go sort it out yourself. And I think all the things that you've just talked about here are ways in which we can, you know, improve people's uh, resilience mm. and tolerance to the different emotional stresses that we all suffer on a, on a daily basis. Mm. Um, one thing I, I learned about from the podcast, or a couple of podcasts I listened, was this notion of expressive oh, writing. Oh, yeah. I haven't come across this ah. before, I'll be honest. <laughs> Could you tell me a bit about expressive writing? So we both have different ideas about how long and how often you're supposed to do it for. Um, but essentially, it's, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know where I, 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 for some reason, had it in my head that you have to do three consecutive days for 30 minutes. I don't think the amount of time, I think you just have to write down whatever comes into your head for a certain amount of time with pen and paper, cannot be typed, um, whatever comes into your head and then you throw it away. You don't then reabsorb it and reflect on it and sort of navel gaze essentially at it. It's, it's, it's trying to get that emotional pain out of your head. And it does take time. So again, it's not that you'll do this one week and you'll suddenly think, oh, I'm better. It, they say it actually takes at least nine months of, of, persistently doing this and I think the key is doing it um I don't think it probably has to be three consecutive days I think it has to just be a regular period and on at least 20 minute period of time of writing whatever comes into your head down and getting rid of it just just because the, the idea that this emotional pain and physical pain are are linked and actually hope, hopefully getting rid of some of the emotional pain will help with the the chronic pain um to relieve that I came across it when I went on a conference about chronic pain and it was uh, run by the SIRPA organisation, which is S-I-R-P-A. And um, <clears throat> Georgie Oldfield, who's a physio who organised that, had, had got these speakers. And one of them was talking about uh, that he was a back surgeon, an orthopaedic surgeon in the States. And he has taken uh, his patients who need back surgery and insisted that each of them write for 20 minutes a day for four days before they're allowed to have 
back surgery and he had really decimated his surgical practice because their pain actually eased. And the idea behind it was that they were unlocking uh, childhood traumas and experiences that were locking them into that pain cycle. And I think it's, again, it's something I think is fascinating, you know, that that the brain is all joined up. There's no section that's pain and a section that's depression and a section that's, um, you know, it's it's all joined up. And so it makes sense that emotions can affect pain. It doesn't mean you're inventing them. It means that the neurochemicals all overlap. And by I sat and tried to do this expressive writing and sitting and writing everything that you can think of for 20, it's quite hard to do. But if you persist yeah, at it because you yeah. stop and you think, what am I going to write next? And that's when the magic happens because then things begin to unlock and then you start to write things you didn't mm. even know were deep in, inside. And um, so I think it's a very interesting technique. But getting people to do it is quite tricky, I've found. And keep doing it. I keep, keep doing, doing it. it, yeah. I, I, had to, uh, uh, I did have a patient that was very, I saw uh, another lady. I think she was 78 last week. She was a lovely lady. And she's very, and she's learned how to paint in the last two years. And she's learned how to play the piano. And she was very excited about expressive writing because she writes her own poetry and she's found that helpful. So I think it's also sometimes about actually not everybody's going to get on with it. So choosing the people who you think will benefit from it or if, um, because otherwise it's that age old oh you're you're trying to make force someone to do something that they're just not gonna yeah, benefit yeah. from or enjoy yeah. and it's possibly going to make things harder so yeah it's, it's fascinating well i'm definitely going to try that I, I i mean that sounds fascinating and I, I can imagine you know putting a 20 minute timer on and just writing whatever and and just for clarification, do you write shorthand? You could or write, you write whatever you like. It doesn't matter. Or can it just, just, be just write freely. It's written. Okay. Uh, and then, but then some people say, oh, uh-huh. and then what do I do with it? And I said, then you get rid of it. You don't read. The idea is not to ruminate it. on it. The idea is to detox mm. onto paper um, and then get rid of it. So, yeah. Mm. I mean, we often are, are suggesting a, a range of things. So some people find yoga is really helpful. Some people find that, mm. that Tai Chi and that sort of smooth pattern of moving is mm. really helpful. Mm. Um, other people will do Pilates because that can be quite helpful for any sort of neck and postural issues. Um, mm. And some people have tried osteopathy or acupuncture. So we're, we're very happy for people to find the thing that works for them. Uh, but it's kind of nudging them towards mm. those options that they can use for their own self-management, I think, is what we try and do at the centre, really. Brilliant. Uh, and, and and again, a lovely lovely segue into one of the other <laughs> things I want to talk about, which is exercise. And I, I, I imagine from um, a glucose disposal point of view, like thinking about it mechanically here, you know, uh, skeletal muscle is one of the biggest glucose disposal mechanisms. So it, it sort of stands to reason that if you have good long lean muscles that are able to stabilize your sugar, um, that, that can be beneficial potentially in migraine management. But of course, it really depends on the individual and the types of exercise that they want to engage in. Um, are there any particular types of exercise that you guys uh, recommend? And also the hurdle of suggesting to someone who has chronic migraines you know what you need to go out and exercise now i mean that can be a huge obstacle in, it, in itself so this is one of my favorite um, subjects i love talking about exercise and migraine um so um 
Essentially, there are a few things to think about. So some people can find that their migraines are triggered by exercise. And we talk about it a lot with children as well when they're doing sports and things like that. Um, and that, as you said, I mean, again, it's to do with the glucose levels. If, I think if people are doing high intensity forms of exercise, they can get um, a cortisol, um, a, a, they can get a, a, a boost in cortisol levels. Um, so that's another variation which can trigger a migraine and then dehydration as well. So um, I think it's, but I always say to people, just be mindful that you've been hydrated and you're, you're fueled before, during and after exercise. So that's the first thing to consider. So I'm very I'm very pro-exercise generally, but for migraine, I do think it's quite helpful. Then you have to think about what forms of exercise you're doing. So I have some patients who can't run because that pounding on the street, they find that it, it, it shakes their head and they will get irritation or particularly with chronic migraines oh. and that motion sensitivity is too much. I had one patient who found rock climbing really useful because he could just keep his head in one position and it was less sort of moving around. Vestibular migraine patients often hate yoga because inversions will make them feel, um, feel uh, give them vertigo. Um, then there's this other, um, my other favourite topic, which is cold water swimming. So this is the thing that I tend to advise people who are really struggling. So there is evidence that, um, some early evidence that um, open water swimming can actually relieve symptoms, particularly when you're in the water. And that's for two reasons. Um, it's the cold, so that biofeedback from actually having cold taking pain away. So um, it's, I suppose I always think of it like a distraction technique for the nerves. So it's taking, it's redirecting the nerve fibres. So cold um, immersion. The swimming itself, the actual exercise seems to also relieve symptoms. Um, so I do have one or two patients that try and go out to the sea every day, rain or shine, if they've got chronic migraine. Wow. And they say it's the only thing that will get rid of their pain at the time. Um, so I, that's, I, swimming, I think, is possibly another thing that can be quite helpful. But it seems to be particularly open water swimming. <laughs> that's the thing. <laughs> I find that fascinating because I've 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 read some and and obviously I haven't read as much as you guys but I've read some uh um papers stating that some of the utility of supplements is based on um uh, defective mitochondrial energy production and cold water swimming is a really good way of boosting mm -hmm. mitochondrial biogenesis. Um so I wonder if there's a, a, a sort of like a, a parallel with that and perhaps that's one of the mechanisms of action behind cold water swimming that's fascinating i'm quite a fan i took a dip in the sea in cornwall on christmas day and had a bit of a migraine beforehand and i came out and i was so buzzing and tingling it was amazing but sadly the migraine came back later on as i was cooking the christmas dinner <laughs> you can't stay in the no. you can't stay in the sea all day sadly yeah. yeah the other thing i was going to say about exercise types is i find if people have got a lot of if they're posturally very head forward and round shouldered, they tend to have a lot of tension in the muscles of the uh, the trapezius muscles and, the, and then even the deltoid muscles. And so if they're doing a lot of weightlifting in the gym, that can actually aggravate. Or if they're doing breaststroke swimming with their head up out of the water. So I think look, it, we do need to look a little bit at posture and, and because of the bidirectional influence of neck the neck and shoulders send messages to the brain that can trigger migraine. 
but also the other way around. So migraine can trigger neck and shoulder pain. And I do sometimes turn people sideways and look at them and get them to put their head into the correct anatomical position and, and roll their shoulders back. And they, they sort of, oh. Um, but you need somebody to help yeah. you with guidance on uh, the right muscle exercises to do with that. So physios or osteopaths can be really quite helpful with that. But yeah, I agree mm. with Jess about the eating and drinking around exercise, especially kids. We I had a little boy who... Mm. <clears throat> we'd largely managed his migraine and he much, much better. His mum came back and said, oh, it's always this particular day. He gets it. And it was always the day after he had football training the night before, after school. And he always got a migraine oh. the next day. And so we put in more snacks. I haven't seen him since. So I'm assuming he's better. Oh, <laughs> That's great. I, I, I wanted to ask about one last thing and I, and I feel like a bit of a fraud for putting it right at the end because <clears throat> a large majority of the uh, listeners are female and this isn't to state, you know, to, you know, insinuate that it is not important, but um, migraines related to changes in what well, normal menstrual cycles and also in the menopause. I know you've done a whole podcast on this topic, so we will definitely refer people to that for a more full yeah. discussion on the, you know, all the different nuances and, and, and issues with it. But uh, uh, alongside all the other sort of lifestyle measures, are there any things extra that you'd want to comment on with regard to this particular type of migraine that's particularly troublesome? Well, I think women are more prone to migraine. So one in four women get migraine. And actually pre-puberty, um, more boys get migraine than girls. So there must be a hormonal, it must be the fact that even people who ah, don't have strict mi menstrual migraine, as in it's very specific definition, most women will notice that fluctuations in hormone levels can trigger migraine. So whether or not that's a strong trigger for them or a weak trigger, some women just find that the hormonal levels will will um will affect this and it tends to, we focused a lot on the estrogen level and on estrogen i think they are doing research into other things um so i mean strict menstrual migraine has to be around the period so between um uh, between three days before and three days after the period is has to, and it's like clockwork and it's always without aura so without the flashing lights we haven't talked about aura at all but without the additional um <laughs> neurological symptoms which are usually visual so uh, preceding a, a, the headache phase of the attack um but as i said women can find that hormonal variations will make their migraines worse and times we tend to think about this are when periods start so menarche that first period um uh, when they have when people are having irregular or heavy periods they can be more likely to have migraines um around um pregnancy so there's a big myth that everybody's migraines get better during pregnancy actually if you have migraine with aura your migraines are, can get worse um and also there are other physiological changes of pregnancy so your body changes a lot during pregnancy that can trigger migraines because it's a change in normal state again. Um, and then the next thing we think about is menopause as well. So um, there are lots of things that people think about with it. So some people will want to sort of manipulate the hormones to give a more steady state hormone level. And if you don't have aura, um, if you've never had that extra symptom, then you are and uh, you can try the combined oral contraceptive pills. So that's the normal pill that gives you the... 21 pill, well, the, the typical way of using it is 21 days on, seven days off. And there are different ways of playing around with it, which we discuss a lot more with Dr. Anne McGregor, um, who's the 
hormonal migraine guru um, in our podcast. Um, but they can try that. If you have, um, if you do have aura, you can think about the progesterone only pill. Some people find that the Mirena coil or implant can be helpful, usually only if it gets rid of periods altogether. Um, but some people can just find that that stabilizing hormones can be useful. And um, sometimes actually taking, um, changing which types of um, medications people use um, around those hormonal migraines can be useful as well. So if people have heavy painful periods, using something to, um, so using methanamic acid, which is the specific type of of NSAID or ibuprofen-like medication, um, can be quite helpful for the migraine and for the period pains as well. So yeah, there tends to be quite a lot around (laughs) hormonal migraines. Yeah. Yeah. Just um, a word about menopause. Uh, So menopause, there are lots of different products, as you know, which are used for HRT. But because for migraine, we're trying to keep the even blood hormone levels, the best form of HRT for people suffering from uh, migraine in their perimenopause, that's the time around the change, uh, or in the menopause, is the transdermal through the skin method. So patches are ideal you just put one on and you change it usually twice a week and uh, if you have still having periods you obviously need to have the estrogen and the progesterone in a combined patch and that can just nicely smooth the level out it seems to be the falling level of estrogen that triggers Mm. the migraine aggravation and so when people are going through the menopause of course their estrogen levels will vary and fluctuate quite a lot they don't just smoothly decline um so they can go down a bit up a bit and so by putting some hrt in there and just uh, raising that estrogen levels so that it's more consistent throughout the month um some people find that's really really helpful i mean i think we we would both be big fans of hrt i think we think it's underused in general Mm. uh, and people shouldn't be scared of it they need to get good advice and that may be from their gp if their gp has a specialist interest in menopause or it may be from a specialist menopause clinic Uh, And there are quite a number of those available, but there's a British Menopause Society has a leaflet on their website about menopause and migraine uh, that we I often direct people to that because it gives them a a good range of choices. So, yeah, there's lots to talk about with hormones. Yeah, I'll make sure to link that in the show notes for sure. And we've actually done a a podcast um, all about the menopause and the menopausal treatments as well with a a friend of mine who's a GP and a specialist um, in there. Uh, female hormones as well so that's 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 brilliant um this has been great (laughs) i feel like i've learned so much about migraines and i really think this can be empowering for a lot of people suffering from them um your podcast goes into a lot more depth across a range of different headache uh, Mm -hmm. types like you you guys talked about the start as well as specific instances and i noticed that you've done one recently that i haven't uh, listened to on covid yes um and uh and and migraines as well so i'll definitely direct people to 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 that podcast too in particular um but i I just want to say thank you um for the incredible work you guys are doing the attention you're bringing to this highly um highly important subject that afflicts so many people and that's why i was super keen to speak to you guys about it and i and i promise you i will cook (laughs) (laughs) yeah well we're witnesses for each other now so we're going to hold you to that yeah (laughs) (laughs) exactly that's great
I really hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Jessica and Dr. Katie. Amazing GPs and amazing cause as well. Check out the podcast show notes. As always, the National Migraine Center details are going to be there as well as lots of links that we refer to during the show as well. Just to reiterate what we talked about, it is basically about regular eating, glucose balance, exercise, maintaining adequate sleep quality as well as sleep balance, so not oversleeping or undersleeping experimenting perhaps with low carbohydrate diets according to your individual needs being uh, sensitive to what you might have an intolerance to in terms of additives to food or things that you might be uh, genuinely intolerant to as well and then maybe experimenting with certain supplements most notably magnesium vitamin b2 also known as riboflavin and cosin q10 which are the only ones that have evidence base for although that doesn't mean that there might be others that might be useful as well again it's a lot about prevention but there is a lot that we can do with diet and lifestyle to help people manage their conditions and that's exactly why we do this podcast i will see you next week make sure you subscribe to the newsletter and uh, i'll be here talking about another subject 